Good morning, everyone. My name is Ellie Nemetz, and this is Gov Sturm, and we are the presidents of the Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society. It is our pleasure and privilege to welcome you today to the 11th Annual Fold Family Conference in honor of Rabbi Moshe Tendler, sponsored by the Community Synagogue of Muncie. Today's conference, Breaking Down the Firewall, bridges the foundations of Judaism with new advances in scientific technologies in medicine. Some of the topics will challenge the way you think. We ask of you to keep an open mind to the new views and perspectives presented today. Uh, we are incredibly grateful to the support of the Center for the Jewish Future for supporting all of our endeavors, and to Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Tendler for pioneering the field of Jewish medical ethics and allowing us to build an already concrete foundation. We are truly standing on the shoulders of giants. We would like to thank our society mentor, Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman, and our society's executive directors for their ongoing guidance and mentorship. The Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society is incredibly privileged to have the support of President Rabbi Berman, allowing the Medical Ethics Society to educate the student body and the Jewish community at large. We now like to ask Rabbi Glasser, the Dean of the Center for the Jewish Future, to say a few words. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society Annual Conference. It's so nice to see everyone here. Thank you so much for coming out on a uh, snowy and cold morning. And we are sure that the warmth and the inspiration of today's program will certainly uh, be overwhelming for all of us. It is a great privilege for Yeshiva University Center for the Jewish Future to play a mentoring role in the development of this conference and in the Student Medical Ethics Society in general. And I'd like to thank Rabbi Aryeh Charka and Menachem Lewin and Rob Shore, who have guided the students through the organization of this event, and to Mr. Paul Glasser, who was instrumental in working with the students to develop the sponsorship that made this event possible today. We also want to thank Dr. Reichman for his ongoing support and mentorship for the Medical Ethics Society as well. But today's conference is really about the creativity and the ambition and the aspirations of our incredible Yeshiva University students. Where else can Jewish students walk the halls of their university and encounter on an informal and on a classroom basis the pioneers and the cutting-edge experts in the field of medical ethics? This conference, its depth, its professionalism, its reach, reveal the unlimited capacity of the Medical Ethics Society students as our leaders of the next generation. This coming semester will be exactly 20 years since I personally walked into Rabbi Dr. Moshe Tendler's course on medical ethics. And I remember very vividly sitting in his class as Rabbi Teller was sharing newspaper articles about a complex ethical question that arose relating to conjoined twins. And I remember sitting in the course feeling like we are in the presence of the ethicist, the doctor, and the posek, who is instrumental in guiding the resolution of this question. And it made such a profound impression on me and on all of the other students, this incredible combination of scholarship of talent, of conviction of principles, and the ability to navigate the challenges of the day, 
with such a sense of insight and the ability to emerge with ultimately a pathway forward. This worldliness is balanced with profound conviction. It's the imprint that Rabbi Temler leaves on his countless students and especially on those who have entered the field of medicine and in the rabbinate. I'd like to thank this morning Dr. Marty Gewurz from the Community Synagogue of Muncie for his instrumental role in bringing together the celebration of Rabbi Temler's contributions to the broader world and the Student Medical Ethics Society as an opportunity to recognize Rabbi Dr. Temler's achievements in a manner that continues to inspire our students to perpetuate his work in confronting the challenges of medical innovation within the framework of halakhic observance and of Jewish values. Today's conference is part of a very special year here at Yeshiva University. Only a few months ago, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman was invested as Yeshiva University's fifth president. Rabbi Berman is a gifted leader, a gifted scholar, an orator, and he has a deep understanding of Yeshiva University and its unique culture, having graduated from four of its schools, earning his BA from Yeshiva College, his master's from the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies, his rabbinical ordination from Reitz, following Reitz, studying in the prestigious Kolo Elyon, becoming an instructor of Talmud in the yeshiva, in 2000 becoming the rabbi of the Jewish Center in New York City, and after making Aliyah to Israel in 2008, completing his doctoral work in, with a PhD in Jewish thought at the Hebrew University of Yerushalayim. Rabbi Berman's vision for Yeshiva University and for our community is so focused on the world of tomorrow, on the challenges and the opportunities that it will bring to our students and to our community. And that vision is proudly manifest in the extraordinary work of our students in formulating and organizing today's conference. It is a great privilege and a wonderful pleasure to introduce Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. Thank you, Rabbi Glasser. It's a great honor to uh, be here this morning. And I thank all of the organizers, the students, and professors for arranging this stellar and important event in our university uh, system. It's certainly an honor to always be in the presence of Rabbi Dr. Moshe Temler, and especially this morning uh, for this uh, great uh, um, event in celebration of his wonderful, wonderful career. Uh, since the dawn of time, <clears throat> and the birth of literature, humans have been captivated by the possibility of finding new technologies that will enable them to create. Often these efforts are seen as running counter to the will of God, for man is exceeding his natural limitations and becoming too God-like. In the Greek tradition, for example, the fire stolen by Prometheus and the power of flight flaunted by Icarus, were conceived of as a threat to the divine order. A fascinating counter-tradition, however, may be found in the Babylonian Talmud. In Mesechet Sanhedrin, the Talmud relates, Amar Rabbah, 
If the righteous want, they are able to create a world. The Gemara continues with a fascinating story. Rava Baragavra. Rava created a man. Shadra Lakamra He sent the man before Rabzaira. Rabzaira started asking the man questions and the man couldn't answer him. The man seemingly was mute. You were created just by man. Go return to dust. So Rabba, first of all, identifies very interestingly that it's the tzaddikim, it's the righteous that are able to create new worlds. And then also interestingly, the section continues with a peculiar story of Rubber's creation not being able to enter Abzera and then being sent and discarded to return to dust. What is the message of this passage in the Gemara? Perhaps the Gemara is teaching us that human creation is not a threat to the divine if it is done correctly. In this case, it's the very stewards of Jewish tradition, the sages themselves, who are entrusted with the godlike capacity to create new life. For it is these sages who are best prepared to develop and maintain a morally mature perspective on the human-God relationship. Rebbe's creation, while great, is recognized by Rebzera as pale in comparison to the real thing. And as such, it can be easily discarded. It is the sages who place their acts of creation in a larger theological and moral framework, understanding both their own capacities as well as their own limitations, who are said to be given this power to create. We are living in a remarkable time. Human innovation is proceeding at a remarkable pace thereby enlarging by leaps and bounds our capacity to help others and improve lives across the globe. Today's conference discussing the technological frontiers in the health fields, from the CRISPR gene editing to augmenting neuroenhancers, implicates technologies that may even blur the line between improving human life and creating it. Should we regard such advances with suspicion do such technologies deify us? Do they turn human beings into gods? Yeshiva University in the grand tradition of Rabbi Nebzeira represents a unique opportunity to both celebrate these new technologies and contextualize them. Standing at the nexus between heritage and pioneering, Yeshiva University is best prepared to appreciate that human innovation is a glorious gift from God, while simultaneously recognizing that it doesn't turn us into God. This conference is a great expression of Yeshiva University and what we stand for. We bring our 3,000-year-old tradition into the world of tomorrow. The field of medicine is changing quickly along with the new technologies and advances in science, and we must place these developments within the context of our values in order for us to best know how to incorporate them into our lives. This conference, as we said, is in honor of the person who for the last century best exemplifies the dual values of tradition and innovation. 
Rabbi Dr. Moshe Tenler has all his life brought the wisdom of our tradition to bear on the science of our day. As someone who models both sides of this coin, a first-rate Talmud Chacham and a stellar scientist, he has been a teacher and role model for generations of students. It is very fitting that this conference is in his honor, and we wish him Arichat Yamin, so that his students can continue to learn from him for many years to come. Thank you all for participating. I very much look forward to an enriching and fruitful discussion. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Berman. Uh, I would now like to ask, uh, we have a, a gift of tribute uh, to both Rabbi Tenler as well as to Dr. Gewurz. Uh, for the last number of de decades, Yeshiva University has shared the wisdom and the presence of Rabbi Tenler together with the Community Synagogue of Muncie. And from Rabbi Tenler's shul, he has had the opportunity to inspire and uplift the broader community of Rockland County and beyond. And this past, uh, just a couple of months ago, there was a beautiful dinner uh, that celebrated his achievements and his accomplishments in the community. And this entire conference, and the conference moving forward for quite a number of years, uh, is in honor of Rabbi Temler due to the love and affection, admiration and respect of his Balabatim uh, in his shul. And so therefore, to represent them, we'd like to ask Dr. Gewurz to come up, as well as Rabbi Temler, so we could present them uh, each with a gift on behalf of Yeshiva University in tribute to all you've accomplished. Actually, we'll, we'll come to you. Here we go. Come down. <laughs> to remind Rabberman that man can create a man but they can't come into a minion. <laughs> Kedusha comes only from Am Yisrael. I'm sure most of the people here will have no trouble understanding 
what Balaramos means. In your private property, in Shusayotik, it all belongs to you. And your property is an extension of your hand. In Shusayotik, you're competing for space. But everyone has Dalaramos, approximately seven feet of circumference around him. That area is your private property. Comes the Gemara and says, <clears throat> I don't want to know what you do when you're in the yeshiva. Tell me what happens when you go out into the Rosh Do you still have your Dalai Amos there? What happens when our students leave the yeshiva? Go to graduate schools. Suddenly the world opens up and you find that there's competition between the Rishus Harabin and the Dawel Amos of my Rishus. Yesterday, actually not yesterday yet, but it's this week, Yosef finally reveals himself to his, to, to his brothers in Parshas Vayigash. They come back to tell Yaakov, Oh, Yosef Chai, Yosef is still alive. Can't believe them. They lied to Yaakov once before when they made up this story about Yosef being attacked by a wild animal, therefore he did not return. Then Vayares Agolos, he saw the wagons that Yosef sent, and that convinced him that Yosef was alive. Rashi, the Medrash record, what's Agolos? They used to study together. And he sent as a message to Yaakov, I remember the last thing we studied together. We studied the halachos of Egla Rufa, of how the town has to behave when near that town a murdered individual was found. It's interesting, and I think this will be a bit of a chidush, a novelty for many people here. On Medr Shrabah, there's a Rashi scattered very few times as Rashi comment on the Medrash Chaba. On this Agolos, the Medrash Chaba says, Agolos, not Eglarufa, for a story about a murdered man, Bayares Agolos, Agolos shall Mishkan. The Mishkan was built and then taken down many times, they had to have wagons. And the Nassim contributed the wagons, six wagons, wagons were big wagons, they had a halachic rule of Rushus Hayochi, a private property. The desert in which they stood was public property. And the Gemara in Shabbos teaches us how do we know that it's forbidden on Shabbos to carry from a private domain to a public domain and vice versa? 
because of the agolos of the Mishkan, because the agolos were Rishus Hayochid, were private property, and they lifted up the boards of the Mishkan to the wagon, and from the wagon, as Rishus Hayochid to Rishus Arabim, Rishus Arabim to Rishus Hayochid. I believe that's what Rashi says, Bayares Agolos, the Agolos shall Mishkan. Yosef sent a message to his father Yaakov, I know the difference between Rishus Hayochid and Rishus Harabim. My Rishus Hayochid remained sacrosanct. The Rishus Harabim was in the house of Paro, was in the country called Egypt, the Amaro country. But my Rishus Hayochid was the house of Yaakov. That remained. What happens when our Talmudim go out into the Rishus Harabim? Suddenly, the world opens up, and sadly, some people spending years in yeshivas don't know how to cope with that world, and often they fall prey to the world at large. Premed society, before premed society, I can't, I can't even tell you when, because you won't believe me, uh, but it was in the 1950s that I began saying a shear for pre-med students after hours. It wasn't considered to be important enough to become a formal program for yeshiva. In 1957, the year I received my doctorate from Columbia, I began a formal year in ethics of medicine. And now, I tell me this challenge to such an extent that without these conferences, it's not possible for a student to be prepared to go to medical school. It's not possible for a student to go to graduate school. Because he never saw Shushayohid interacting with Rishushayohid. What's facing the Talmud now? There were words that have multiple meanings. It's far different to a Talmud, or it should be far different to a Talmud. There are challenging words today in medicine. Futile care. What's futile care? You have concepts that have to do with when is a person dead. Do not resuscitate orders. But there's more than that. There is the sociology of the outside world. And here our Talmudian, I must say, excel as I get feedback. I know that they do well in interpersonal relationship. Some Rav Seichel even make sure that Hanukkah there's a box of candy for the nursing staff. The nursing staff is very valuable to a Talmud who needs a little help on Shabbos in order to observe the Halachos. 
Is it possible for a fooling boy to go to medical school? Society demands it. It's critical for society to be able to see a little peek into our Rishusayochit, how a Talmud behaves. Balosas Aneros is associated with Hanukkah. Balosas Aneros, there's a wonderful quote Directly, did it see the Hamidogo that many of you people study? Says as follows: Kadosh who said to light the seven candles, like you should know, he says that they represent Sheva Chachmos. They represent all of human knowledge. In the old Greek system of dividing up all of human knowledge into seven components, like. Listen to this language. Shebeli yidiya b'chola chachmos i'esha lovo l'kama ikhriya tova Without knowing the outside world, knowing all of wisdom, you can't know tova. Actually, Gohan preceded him. Quoted by Baruch Mishklov, who said the same thing. And if someone is not cognizant of the seven chachmos, he'll know far less of the tova. What does that mean? The seven chachmos represent outside world. We have to learn to live in the outside world. But the important thing is to know They all have to face the central Manova, which represents Torah. Without outside knowledge, it's impossible to understand Torah. Without the Torah, it doesn't pay to understand the outside knowledge. Who should watch over our Talmudim. They should continue to be a source of pride and joy to Am Yisrael, a source of personal nachas in their families. And thank you very much for an honor that was unnecessary. Every morning when I come to Yeshiva, I'm honored more than enough. What a tremendous zchus and honor to be here uh, for a day uh, giving tribute to one of the icons of uh, the Torah world in general, 
and one of the prizes of, uh, of Yeshiva University. Um, for this conference, I specifically want to point out the, uh, those who have uh, been responsible for this, the presidents of the Medical Ethics Society, Gav and Ellie, uh, and all the members of the Medical Ethics Society. A tremendous round of applause for all their uh, efforts in uh, putting this together. And Rabbi Berman, our new leader and the CJF, uh, instrumental in making these kinds of things happen. I say it every year, the Medical Ethics Society really is the, uh, the torch of, uh, of Yeshiva University, really uh, the uh, institution or the organization which uh, so embodies everything that we stand for. Uh, and Rabbi Tendler uh, truly embodies that uh, more than anyone here at this, at this institution. And I have the pleasure of bringing Rabbi Tendler special regards and mazel tov from a dear colleague of his from Jerusalem. Uh, and I read for you, uh, dear Rabbi Tendler, along with countless, countless others, I am privileged to add my mazel tov and congratulations on your receiving this well-deserved recognition and honor by Yeshiva University, Dr. Fred Rosner. Fred, uh, dear colleague and friend of, uh, of Rabbi Tendler for many, many years, is very, very excited and proud and, uh, and happy for you. Um, most professors, if they're lucky, get one conference in their honor. Uh, Baruch Hashem, the uh, Community Synagogue of Muncie, has uh, sponsored five conferences because they know for Rabbi Tendler, <coughs> one conference simply isn't enough. <coughs> they actually say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And uh, Rabbi Tendler has the distinction probably of being the most imitated professor in the history of Yeshiva University. Uh, but that's not what I mean. I don't mean his characteristics of imitation. I mean we imitate what he has begun back in the 1950s. All of us in the field of, uh, of medicine and halacha, we are genuinely imitating him. This uh, medical ethics conference is really a continuation of the work that he began. And we, uh, we owe a tremendous uh, debt of gratitude that we simply could never repay. And I just want to conclude my tribute to, uh, to Rabbi Tendler by saying they said of the Rambam, mi Moshe ad Moshe lo kam kemoshe. We could say that now, mi Moshe ad Moshe lo kam kemoshe, from Moses Maimonides to Rabbi Moshe Tendler. So we wish you many, many healthy years of happiness. I wanted to suggest, uh, and I'm glad Rabbi Berman is here as well, a new logo for Yeshiva University, which I have up on the screen for you, uh, especially in light of Rabbi Tendler's presence. I think it so embodies everything we have to talk about, everything we have to say at these kinds of conferences. And the slogan would be, Torah is part of our DNA, and DNA, or the study of Mada, is part of our Torah. Uh, so I submit that for your consideration, and I look forward to, uh, to discussing it further. I do confess, by the way, this, uh, my session is specifically related to the tribute to Rabbi Tendler. It's about longevity, and our objective is really purely selfish. Uh, we want to uh, give Rabbi Tendler a longevity gene, so he will be with us for, for many, many healthy, happy years to come. Uh, I just want to really set the stage, give a little bit of uh, Jewish and halachic context, uh, to an extraordinary speaker we are about to hear who's on the cutting edge of research into the world of longevity. Uh, and uh, I begin with this, uh, this cartoon, which uh, has a doctor speaking to a patient and says, I am writing you a prescription 
Do you want a longer life with less quality or vice versa? And that really is one of the questions we need to address. But what I'd like to do is just to share with you uh, what the Jewish sources have to say about the world of longevity. Now, the Torah even tells us the secret to longevity. It gives us two mitzvahs that we can perform. Uh, the mitzvah of kibbutz Ba'im, honoring our father and mother, and the mitzvah of shiluah hakein, sending off the, uh, the bird before we take the chicks. Uh, this, however, can't be the secret to extreme longevity, because in the last hundreds of years, even those who have observed this mitzvah have not been uh, the beneficiaries of great longevity. But we do have precedent in our literature, in our tradition, in our Masora, of people living extremely long lives. We all know we're in the midst of Sefer Bereshis, that our, uh, that our ancestors, starting from Adam Harishon, lived uh, almost close to a thousand years. Uh, and as you see here on your, uh, on your graph of our, of our early ancestors, now some have suggested actually that perhaps those years were not real solar years. Maybe they were based on lunar months and maybe there were short periods of time. So the Abarbanel, for example, uh, says of Ahadas Hazeh Chazov, to maintain that these were not actually full years, uh, would be lying, would be inappropriate, and would be absolute falsehood. So how do our predecessors, how do the Rishonim, explain this great longevity, and explain its purpose, and explain why it changed so that the longevity has decreased down to the maximum, if you will, of 120 years. Ribsadigon, for example, suggested that the reason for the extreme longevity was to populate the world. People lived longer, had more children. Once that objective was accomplished, the lifespan was shortened down to the normal lifespan. The Rambam, however, maintains that only those specific people mentioned in the Torah lived those long lives, and the rest of the generations did not. And their longevity was either due to natural causes, them preserving their own health, or perhaps possibly due to uh, miraculous causes. The Ramban, however, says different. The Ramban says all people in those generations were privy to uh, extreme longevity. So what changed? Why did things go down? So he says the flood, the mabul, caused damage to the environment which affected subsequent longevity. And if you look at the graph, you will see, it's actually quite remarkable, that red line that you see is the time of the mabul, and you will see a very gradual, though precipitous, uh, to, to some extent, drop from the years of, uh, of, say, Noah, who was born well before the flood, who lived till 950, to Shame, who lived 600 years, who was born just before the flood, to all those who were born after the flood, this whole column, significantly lower lifespan. So that's what the Ramban maintained. It's interesting there are those today who are beginning to explain what the Ramban said hundreds of years ago. <clears throat> so, for example, in an article in 1987 in a journal called Karot, a scientist, not referring to the Ramban, said that mycotoxins were released in the flood and decreased the lifespan of the human being. But apropos this particular conference, which talks about genetics and longevity, I want to share with you this uh, article by Natan Abiezer, The Extreme Longevity of the Early Generations in Genesis. And he comments on the fact also that things decreased significantly with the flood. And here is really his suggestion, which is quite a remarkable suggestion. 
He says that indeed, at the time of the flood, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made the following pronouncement. After the flood, Vayom Hashem lo yidom ruchi ba'adam le'olam b'shagam hu basar v'hayu yamav me'ad esrim shana. That he says at the time of the flood already, God said, man's lifespan will be maximally 120 years. But what's interesting is that if you look at that chart that we had before, it's not a precipitous drop that went from 1,000 years to 120 years, but rather people lived 600 years, 500 years, 300 years, until it leveled off at 120 years. So here's his very novel suggestion, which bears direct relevance to us. It says, in the light in the light of earlier scientific discussions of aging, we propose that the divine pronouncement of Genesis 6-3 can be understood as meaning that at the time of Noah, the genes for aging were introduced into the human gene pool. That when HaKadosh Baruch Hu introduced the genes for aging, it took a number of generations for those genes to be transmitted until ultimately it became that man's maximal lifespan was, was a pure 120 years. By the way, we need to differentiate between longevity and aging. Longevity is the length of life. Aging is a different phenomenon. And in fact, according to our Mesorah, it is Abraham Avinu who asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu that there be aging in the world. Because of an interesting uh, uh, experiment, if you will, or a phenomenon that occurred just with him and his son Yitzchak. The Torah says, the Eila told us Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham holidus Yitzchak. So why the repetition? Rashi famously comments that, Abimel- that Avraham and Sarah were infertile for many years, and then they went to visit Abimelech, and shortly thereafter, Sarah became pregnant. And the late Sani Hador, the, some people said, well, maybe in fact Sarah is pregnant from Abimelech, because Avraham was infertile all these years. So what Kadosh Baruch Hu did is he made Yitzchak appear identical to Avraham. Literally identical. And Rabbi Sachs said actually from this podium at one of our conferences that this was the first uh, case of, uh, of human cloning. That Kadosh Baruch Hu uh, had an experiment of human cloning. But Avraham didn't, wasn't so excited about this experiment. Why so? Because when people would come to visit him at home and want to do business with him, they'd start talking business with Yitzchak. And people came to play with Yitzchak. They saw Avraham. They thought it was the same person. They'd start to sit and play Legos with, uh, with Avraham. So it, the experiment didn't work out so well. So Avraham Avinu actually petitioned HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and you have in your handout here in the Gemara uh, in Sanhedrin. And he says, Ad Avraham lo hayazikna. You know, called the chazi Avraham omar hayitzchak, etc., etc. So he actually requested from HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he introduce the concept of aging that there not only be, uh, there, there's a difference obviously in their longevities, but the aging concept that people would actually age and differentiate between someone younger and someone older was introduced in the times of Abraham. Is longevity always desired? So here I share with you uh, uh, two brief sources. The Yalkut Shimoni says, Masad Isha There was a woman who became very, very old. And she went to Yossi ibn Khalafta. And she says, I'm living too long. I do not want to live anymore. So he said to her, to what do you attribute your longevity? She said, I go to shul every single day and I never have missed davening in my life. So he said, absent yourself from shul for three days. And so she did. 
and she died on the third day. By the way, this is a source quoted very often by, uh, by Rabbi Tendler in discussions about the end of life. And the same is true in this, reflected in this source about the city of Luz. The Luz was a very famous city that uh, uh, because of the schus that the people in the city of Luz made the tcheles for the tzitzis, the people in the city of Luz never died. They had extreme longevity. So what happened? So the Gemara says of those people that Malach Amavis wasn't even sholet on them. So what did they do? How did they end their lives? They would leave the borders of the city when they felt their lives had been complete. And they died as soon as they left the borders of the city. Which implies that they didn't desire specifically extreme longevity, otherwise they could have kept, kept on living. Mir Hashem in the times of the Mashiach, we will actually see extreme longevity. Bila Hamavas Lonetzach that we will see a time in the times of the Mashiach that uh, there will no longer be death and people will live extreme long lives. And just to, to jive this with the, uh, the Rambam, which we said, and this is an article by Aryeh Kaplan, who was ahead of his time uh, in many of his writings, he wrote, it is therefore particularly significant that Maimonides clearly states that in the Messianic age, people will enjoy extremely long lives because of their carefree existence. Since Maimonides consistently maintains that no laws of nature will be violated in the messianic age, one possibility is that there will be scientific or technological progress, though he makes no mention. So if you put this together with Natan Aviezer, that it'll be a natural process through which aging is uh, reversed and longevity will increase, and if we assume that a longevity gene was, was added to the population in the times of the Mabul, then perhaps in the research that we are about to hear presently, we are hearing about the reversal of this uh, decrease of our longevity, and maybe this is actually an indication that Mirza Shem will be uh, seeing the coming of the Mashiach. I would now like to introduce our next uh, speaker who will address this issue of aging. I'm going to introduce her, and we're going to have a very brief 30-second uh, video as an introduction to, uh, to Dr. Cuervo. It is really an honor. She's from our institution, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and really one of the pioneers of, of aging research. Dr. Anna Maria Cuervo is the R.R. Belfer Chair for Neurodegenerative Diseases, Professor in the Departments of Developmental and Molecular Biology and of Medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, co-director of the Einstein Institute for Aging Studies. Uh, she obtained her MD and PhD in biochemistry at the University of Valencia, many, many awards, and uh, you will be uh, astounded at the research that she is involved in to Mirz Hashem, Bring the Times of the Mashiach. I will now uh, put the video up for you, after which Dr. Cuervo will address us. start with Dr. Kerber's speech. Yeah. 
content. It's, it's, do you mean to be the label content? Terrible. Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for, for, for the nice introduction and, and the opportunity to, to be here. I just realized I don't see the screen, so I will have to go by, by what is in front of me. Is it projecting? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm too short for podiums. That's my problem. So, so it's a pity that you didn't see the clip because the, the students selected uh, as a very good way to introduce in proper English what I'm going to try to tell you in broken English. So just try to deal with my, my poor English and my strong Spanish accent uh, as we go through the, through the presentation. Uh, but um, as you hear, we, we are very interested in aging and trying to modulate aging. And the only thing that I can contribute to this audience is the view of a cell biologist uh, and an MD and a PhD, but I'm really a cell biologist by training, and what we think can be done about aging and why we want to do this. So there are one million definitions of aging, and each one has their favorite one. I particularly like this one that says that it's a series of gradual changes in the structure and function in the organisms that occur that are not related to disease. And I like the idea of gradual because you don't wake up and you are old. I mean, there is a process involved that gave us time to, to intervene. And then why we want to intervene? I mean, why we want to modulate aging? I think that the most important reason is also in this definition that is this loss of function. If we will be healthy and happy and running marathons when we are 90 years old, we will not mind to be 90 years old. But unfortunately, as you know very well, uh, there is a loss of function associated with the gradual pass of time. So this loss of function uh, has many implications. So one of them is imperativity, the, the inability to do things by yourself, uh, the loss of independence that affect your quality of life. But from the point of view of the medical field, the thing that worries us is that this loss of function also increase your predisposition uh, to disease. So the chances of getting sick uh, are re definitely higher. So, so how does, if we just put it in a graph, how, how to do age? So imagine, I mean, this is the, uh, is the mouse, can you guys see the arrow? Uh, no, no arrow? Okay, so, so I don't think I can point from here, but uh, basically, uh, as you can see, what, when you age, normally you have function, so this will be survival of function uh, in the Y, and then you have age, and you are fine, and you are functional, and then you have this gradual loss of function. And basically you have 10, 15, 20 years that you are getting sick, you have less mobility, you decrease this quality of life that in the cartoon the doctor was trained to trade. Either you want to live longer, or do you want to have good quality of life and live shorter? And what we are really trained to do, and, and it has been illustrated that there have been many examples of successful aging, is really try to mimic what happened with centenarians. So many of you are familiar, and Stan, we, we have the luxury to have a very comprehensive study following uh, Askanasi youth centenarians' families. And this is how they really die. So basically, they are healthy, 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 healthy. And then in two months, very similar to these three days of not praying, uh, they, they, uh, individuals die. And this is basically what you will want. I hope that if they tell you, okay, you are going to die at 120, but the day before you are going to be running a marathon. 
I think we all will try, in my case it will be a miracle because I never run in my life, but, <laughs> but, but you know, you, you will try for those kind of things to maintain proper function, who will care. And this morning when we, we were chatting in the corner, some people were like, well, the problem is that if you guys are successful and everybody lives longer, that's going to be a problem for Medicare, that's going to be a problem for social service. No, because people will be less sick, so you will be spending less money in Medicare and, and, and medical uh, and drugs and medicines, uh, and also you will have functional people that can more actively contribute to other tasks in the community as they were doing when they were young. So, so I think that the key here is to kind of stop thinking about longevity, whether or not you live longer, the most important thing to increase is the time that you are healthy. So you will see now that in, in many documents, instead of using the idea of lifespan, people start talking about healthspan. How long are you healthy in your life? And if your first disease started when you are 80 or when you are 90, that's a very successful life because you don't have these 20 or 30 years of deterioration. So, so with this two graph basically illustrates a little what we want to do. And the reason, again, we want to do that because when you have this loss of function, these years of deterioration, you have a higher predisposition to disease. So as your function goes down, you become more frail, you become more fragile, and then you have all these age-related disorders that we continuously uh, see, unfortunately, in our uh, grandparents and in our society. A stroke, atherosclerosis, diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer. I mean, these are diseases of aging. And the idea is that if you can push this loss of function to make it flat, like in centenarians, you will not have this high incidence of these diseases. And then the other thing is that if you can push people to be stronger, to have a better function, they will also deal with the disease if it happens in the way that young people did. So normally when you have someone young, you get sick and then you get cured and then you have another disease and you get cured. So basically there is this time of remission and then you are healthy again. Unfortunately, as you get old, the picture is a bit different. You get one disease before you get that one deal with, you have another disease, and we might tackle, you go to the doctor and they might do something for your cardiovascular condition, but you still have these two underlying disorders or other conditions that are going to keep debilitating. So, so the idea is that I think, or the medical community, uh, what we think is that maybe we should approach this different. Rather than going after every disease and then they will be the next one, maybe if we just uh, intervene in aging, if we intervene in this deterioration of function that is associated with aging, we will not have to treat every disease at a time. You will have the kind of response that you have in young people that the remission, the whole process is wide faster. So this idea, of course, I'm not putting it forward as something that I came up, I'm not so smart, but it has become something that we talk a lot in the biomedical community interested in aging research. And actually there is this term that was coined, that is this term of geroscience. And the idea behind, and I, you don't need to read all that, is that um, there is a clear relationship between aging and age-related disorders. And aging is the most important risk factor in all those disorders. And I think, for example, if you ask the population, you think about cancer. Normally, if you ask in the street, oh, what is the highest risk of cancer? Most people say smoke or because of cigarettes, because but that will be for lung cancer. But when you think, except for pediatric cancers, except for cancers that only occurs in kids, 
as you get old, the, the, the probability of getting cancer is higher. So aging is really the higher risk factor of cancer, and in this new concept of neuroscience, is catalogized as an age-related disorder. So, so again, the idea is to really uh, do any kind of research or biomedical interventions that can help us to change for this very uh, um, I mean, this slope in which you have this deterioration for years to this more um, centenarian-like uh, form. So, so that kind of have gave rise during the last 10 years to this new idea of the molecular basis of aging uh, and what we can contribute, and I say with like, the people who, who does basic research, as is my case, is trying to identify what are the molecular and cellular mechanisms that contribute to aging, because those are the ones that we think uh, we can interview, we can modulate, and then you can might be able to reach this flat shape and then fast drop as we are aiming for. So um, this idea, as I say, is not new, but there has been, uh, it has helped uh, to conceptualize it in some clear ideas of what contributes to aging. I'm talking about cellular and molecular processes, and that sounds like very abstract. So interestingly enough, uh, five, four years ago, in both parts of the Atlantic, there was this interest in trying to define a little better what are the molecular changes, what are the cellular processes that we should tackle to really uh, affect aging. And of course, everybody is passionate about their own research, and you can come out with 200 different processes. But there was people that uh, got together, so in the case of the European part, they came up with this very colorful graph that corresponds to nine pillars of aging, nine cellular processes that contribute to aging. In the American part, when we got together, I think we were into the crisis, so instead of nine, we came up with seven. And, and I think that there is no difference in whether there are nine, there are seven, there are going to be probably 20. But having this conceptual frame, having the idea that there are several things that you can intervene and can modulate the process of aging is giving us already a way to work and focus our research and our medical practice trained to act on those ones. And when you look at these two graphs, I mean, even the, these meetings and everything was done separately, we all came up with very similar uh, points. Uh, the only thing is, I know that European is more colorful, I still like ours better, the American one, because of the lines. I mean, it's not only patriotism, but when you look, it has these lines connecting these different processes. And I think that's very important, because that means that everything, as you know, in the organism is very interrelated. So the beauty is that if you affect or if you have a positive impact if one of them, you might have beneficial impact in all the others. So, so the, the, the effect, the result that you get is going to be exponential when you are only acting in a couple of them. Basically, we don't have to cure every single thing. We don't have to fix each of these processes because they are interconnected enough that if one works better, it's going to have a positive impact in the others. And then just to give you a feeling of what are we thinking, and again, I mean, this might be more technical, but just so you get an idea of the kind of cellular processes that we are interested, that I imagine that in a couple of years that they will be different ones. So for example, stem cells. So everybody's familiar that we all have stem cells because when you get damage in any of your organs, for example, in your muscle, your stem cells are gonna repair it. So basically, you have the potential of regeneration and repair inside your body. And it's very clear that as you get old, you have less ability because your stem cells are not so well preserved and they don't function so well. 
You also have the uh, other markers, for example, epigenetics or genetics. So, so these are modifications in your genes that are associated with higher risk of factors uh, for particular diseases and also related or not with longevity. And, and I will give you some examples. You also have processes like metabolism. So the, the European part divided into nutrient sensing and mitochondria, that is the center of energy in, in your cells. Uh, we just talk about metabolism in general. And this goes in what my father always said, you are what you eat. So, so I think this is part of it. I mean, nutrition is so important in our life that it has a big impact also in the rate that we age. And these are, as you can already know, that these are not new concepts, but at least you have now cellular processes or organism processes that you can follow. For example, damage. I think many people are familiar with the concept that as you accumulate damage, uh, probably you are going to have higher chances of mutation and deterioration of your DNA, or you are going to have higher chances of disease associated to particular damage. So of all these, these processes, I'm going to be telling you about the one that probably sounds less appealing. You are like, why is this woman talking about this? That is called proteostasis. So proteostasis is a process that was defined as something important for aging in both parts of the, of the Atlantic and that I happen to be working in. And it sounds very weird word and you know, that's how it goes, but basically it's to keeping your cells clean. And I think cleaning is something that is very important for everybody but also for every cell in your body. So I'm going to illustrate with a series of examples, and if it gets very technical, I have somebody that in the back is going to wave to me to move faster if needed. Uh, but just to give you a flavor, uh, and as I say, I, I cannot contribute at, at the level that the other speakers have, have been talking. I, I, don't, I don't have the, the, their capacity. So I can just give you a flavor of what we are doing as basic scientists trained to modulate this aging and whether or not there is some chances of success. So again, back to this proteostasis funny word. So proteostasis is just the fancy way that we use to talk about protein homeostasis. As you know, your cells are full of proteins, and normally when we depict a, a cell, we always make it look like a fried egg. It's like you have the nucleus, and then you have things floating around. But that's not really true. When you really look at the microscopic level, things are extremely, extremely cramped inside the cell. I mean, everything is in contact. The amount of molecules, I mean, when you zoom it out, you can see. So you have organelles, you have proteins, you have fat. You, you have one million things there that each of them have to be properly coordinated to make sure they don't interact in an abnormal way and make a mess with the other one or they don't interfere with the functions of the others. So the cells need a extreme, accurate, quality control system. And this is what its proteostasis is about, basically to prevent this aggregation, to prevent abnormal things, and to maintain proper quality control as in any factory and in any other thing. So you have to make sure that everything is properly done and everything is moving and folding and going where it should go. So all the cells in your body have this proteostasis network that is just a series of proteins and systems that are going to make sure that proteins behave. And for a protein behave is basically to make sure it's properly fold, as the typical origami thing, and that there are not sticky parts that are going to mess a mess, are going to make a mess in this very, very crowded environment. So what do we have to deal with this? So what, with this uh, what, what is the quality control? So imagine that you have, everybody has here about free radicals. So for example, your mitochondria, as they produce energy, they are going to have a lot, they are going to produce free radicals. So chances of damaging a protein are relatively high. 
So once we damage a protein, so a fun functional protein in this cartoon will be something properly fold, and then if it's damaged, it's gonna unfold. And the problem with this unfolding is that it's gonna, uh, it's gonna present these very sticky areas, these red areas, that are gonna make proteins to get together one to each other. So how does the cell deal with that? So you have chaperones, and basically what they are gonna do is train to fold the protein. So if you can fold it, that's the end of the problem. Or you, if you cannot fold it, you send it to degradation. And that's where you have the proteolytic systems. So the chaperones and proteolytic systems are in place and function in every cell in your body, uh, when you are young and when you are healthy. However, as you get old, it turns out that the chaperones sometimes get distracted, they don't function so well, and sometimes the proteolytic systems, the things that have to remove these garbage containers, cannot really remove all these proteins and they, they start accumulating. So then you end with disaggregates and then you have all these chaperones and all these components. And again, this is sounding is like, oh, what is this woman going with all this aggregation? What does it have to do with disease? So it has to do with disease because many of the diseases that we consider of aging have as a basis problems with this protein aggregation and you're gonna recognize the names. And for example, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Huntington. These are diseases of the brain in which a protein fails to, fails to properly fall and it's gonna start accumulating. And it's like having little stones in your brain inside your neurons. The same thing for other diseases. I don't want to get the idea that this is only related with the neck and above. Uh, when you look, there are forms of diabetes that are related with problems with handling insulin inside the cells or muscle disorders or um, problems with anemia. So, so there are many, many diseases, many more that you, you can think of that are related with these problems in maintaining proper quality control. So the idea of, of our lab is really to try to understand how this cleaning happens and basically, you know, like in everything, the cells have many different ways. The same thing that you have at home, that you have the brooms, you have the vacuum. So the cells have also many different systems, and our labs are interested in looking at those systems and trying to modulate them. So I'm going to give you an example to make it more scientific. So, for example, if you have an unfolded protein and you have to destroy it, you can put it to this kind of food processor. It's called the proteasome, so the protein goes from the top, chop, 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 and then you just get it in pieces. Or you have a whole organelle that many of you remember from your biology classes that people used to call the garbage container, these lysosomes, that are going to be able to take all these aggregates and all these organelles that don't function and continuously eliminate it. And this process is what is known as autophagy. That is the idea of eating yourself, but only eating the bad things to just break them down, eliminate them from the cell, and then obtain energy. So the research that, that we're doing in, in the lab is really focused in this autophagy. And we just have a, a, the same thing that people from the other parts of these uh, nine processes of aging. So we just have three very basic questions. First, we want to know why autophagy. We, we show when I was still young, we show that autophagy decreases as you get old. So, so now the question is why? I mean, we have to, to know why, what are the mechanisms, the molecular mechanisms that are, are responsible for that decrease. Then the second question is like, should we even care? I mean, should you care that your autophagy doesn't work? And then if we really care, because it turns out to be important, the most important thing, can we fix it? Can we contribute to improve proteostasis out of this charge of processes of aging to have a positive impact in the other, in, in the other processes? So to know how it works, 
Uh, I'm just going to show you one very simple cartoon. So imagine that this is the protein that you want to eliminate. So normally, as I say, when the protein is unfold, it exposes this sticky area. You have a chaperone that goes there. It's going to bring it to this garbage can, to this receptor, this LAM2A. And then basically, this is going to form a little hole to make it go inside, so then it can be chopped. So I made this cartoon to tell my father what I work in, and he was not impressed. 25 years for this, so, so it's a little more complex than this orange ball. But, you know, in a way, it's simple. I mean, and we need to know each of these different components if we want to know why it doesn't work. So it happened that as simple as this model is, we found that this blue protein, this receptor that then makes a channel, actually decrease with age. So if you look, for example, you just have to trust me on this. This black band corresponds the amount that you have of this receptor when you are young. So this is in mouse, and at the bottom is in people. So when you are 25, you have tons of this receptor. You have tons of this blue band. As you see, when you reach 65, this is starting to go down. So of course, these are all just technical details, but we need to know how things work if we want to fix it. And this is basically what we have been doing, trying to understand why this, this pathway doesn't work. But then the other question is, like, okay, I can be very passionate about this because I identified this receptor and you know, I have a whole lot of studying. But should we care that autophagy or, or this process of cellular cleaning decrease with age? So the best way to convince ourselves is just take only that part of aging, only these problems with cleaning, put it in a young animal, and see how much of aging this reproduce, because this will tell us, okay, if you modify this system, how much of the process of aging can you find. So to do that is when we do genetics, and this is work from a very talented student in the lab, Jamie Snyder, an MD-PhD, that basically what she did, if you remember this receptor, this channel is the one that decreases as you get old, so what she did is like, let's eliminate it in a young animal and see what happened. And of course, she did it in liver, so we have the possibility to then study what happened in each of the organs of your body. That becomes important for the relation to disease. So she did the liver one, and now we have a zoo. So we have specific for the brain, for the muscle, for the adipose. So we can study all these different organs. And I'm just going to show you one piece. For example, if we just take this cleaning system in the brain of the animals. So all the other things are fine. This is a young animal, no mutations, nothing. And we just took this cleaning system. And as you will see here, so in the top, you have a normal animal. When you grab it from the tail, spread the legs. I mean, this is like, please leave me on the floor. And this is the normal reaction. When you look at, we only took out the cleaning system, these animals are just hanging there. They cannot really move. And this is what an old animal will do. And when you look at the molecular level, you start seeing, and you will see in the cartoon, so the picture at the bottom, you will see these red things. So those are aggregates of proteins that are happening in the brain of these very young animals. So just by taking out the cleaning, you are making their brain to look old. So of course, then we have done for all the organs, and we can reproduce many aspects of aging. But this is kind of depressing. I'm telling you, we are all going to get old, our receptors are going to go down, your cleaning systems are down, so what can we do? And this is really what we are really putting all the effort. So at this moment, we, we, I mean, the idea is can we fix this problem? 
and if we can fix it in an animal, can then we do it in people. So, like everything in science, we, we do genetic approaches to make sure that there is a proof of concept that fixing this problem is going to have a beneficial effect, but then at the end of the day, we have to move into drugs, into chemical compounds that we will be able to give to the patients. So in the next three slides, I'm just going to show you a little the basis for the genetics. So um, the, the, the best thing that we have is that, as I say, our whole goal is to try to make uh, people to look like centenarians. But at Einstein, uh, thanks to Mir Barzilai and, and many others that have contributed to create this study, we have the luxury to have samples and individuals that are uh, centenarians. So we can compare if whatever we are looking is of, uh, it happens in centenarians. So for example, we were able to get cells from centenarians and then look at the levels of this receptor. And these are people from 65 years old and these are centenarians. So the centenarians have better levels of this receptor. So this is terrific because when you look, their cells clean much better and they don't have all these aggregates. So that means that this is something that is contributing through their longevity and through increasing health span. So that's terrific for the centenarians, but unfortunately, most of us, we cannot change our parents now, right? And if they are not centenarians, you are not going to have the good genes that centenarians will have. So the rest of us will just have to try to find ways in which we can reach something similar through interventions. And as I say, as a proof of principle, what Imma um, um, uh, did uh, was to really study, uh, try to create an animal in which she was preventing this decrease in the cleaning system. So normally, as I say, by middle age, you have this decrease in the cleaning. So what she did, we have interventions that then we can put an extra copy of this gene, so now they will maintain good cleaning through life. And then because I'm not getting any younger, I was like, okay, that's fine, but I might have passed already this mid-age. So what's happening if we do it later on? I mean, is there hope for people who have passed already the point? Because these animals never saw a decrease. They just keep going fine. So then we did another group in which we basically can do interventions later and see if this is still have beneficial effect. And I'm not going to go through all the details, but this is what happened with longevity. So in orange, in blue, are the regular animals. In orange are those ones that you prevent the decline in cleaning. And both in males and females, we have an increase of 20% in lifespan. But what is better, when you look at the top of the graph, the health span, the time that they are healthy, is also higher. So they start to look a little more at the centenarians. And then we check function. So there are one million things that you can check. The one that got very excited, the people in my lab, especially the guys, is boldness. I mean, something as silly, we were talking about quality of life, but apparently guys don't deal very well with the loss of hair. So when you look at these animals, both males and females, actually, they preserve their hair for longer. And I just put the hair as something anecdotic, but, you know, they have higher mobility, they have lower, uh, less incidence of disease, less fibrosis. So, so in a way, just by genetically modifying this, this particular pathway, we can do that. But as I said, you, you are not going to be doing genetics in an 80-year-old person so this person can live longer. So at the end of the day, what we have to develop is chemical compounds. And I'm just going to skip this part because I see the people waving at, at the bottom. But basically, we have now developed some drugs that can activate this pathway. And that when we try, for example, we are trying now in regular all animals, but to put it in the context of disease, we use an Alzheimer mouse model of disease. And basically, when you compare 
three months of treatment. This is the animal that was just hanging there. You gave it the drug and it started to be like healthy and, I mean healthy, at least uh, is recovering the, the, the muscle system, the contractibility, and most important is recovering the memory. And I can tell you how we measure the memory any other time. But the idea is that by knowing what are the molecular bases, we can really develop at the end uh, tools and interventions that can span the lifespan. So again, to go back to this idea that aging is not a single factor, we have modified proteostasis. We have only modified cleaning in these animals. But when we look at metabolism, they are much better. They are not diabetic. They, they handle much better uh, fat and sugar. Their stem cells are much better. So we are also affecting stemness. We look at inflammation and accumulation of damage is less, obviously, and when we look at inflammation, it's better. So we, we intervene in one pathway and we have a high beneficial effect. So, so I think this is a, an important concept that by understanding how these things uh, interconnect, we might be able to, to push to a successful aging something more similar to what we have in centenarians. And then this is basically just to really acknowledge the terrific team that I have in, in the lab. These are the current members, uh, the picture of the ones that are now there. We don't go dressed like that to the lab, but this was for a, for a match, a soccer match. And, and then uh, we are extremely, extremely fortunate to always have the, the support of the school of Albert Einstein and also all these foundations who gave us the money. And I just want to, to leave you with this quote that I think it goes very much into what we want to do. And this is for one of the centenarians that says that the trick is not to stay young, but really the trick is aging well. So, so I hope we can contribute to do that. Thank you for your attention. So, so that's a, a really good point, and actually we are, as we speak, uh, there is another meeting that we are having for the geroscience to include psychological factors. I think as a cell biologist, we always think in molecular processes that you can touch, but there is a stream, long uh, line of evidence showing that emotional stress, psychological stress, have a tremendous negative impact in longevity. And those studies have been done with populations that are in poverty, with people that have been under oppression or just like regular abuse. So, so with the stress, that's the main problem, that part of the aging is an inability to respond to stress. So this continuous sustained high level of stress definitely contributes to aging. So yeah, many people tell me I'm a very stressful person. So, so I think being in my lab will not be a good therapy because we are very stressed. But I think that there are many different ways and people talk about meditation. And you know, there, there is some good into that because when you push a, a level, it's like everything, like the typical concept of hormesis. A little is good because it puts your defense up to, to a speed. When you pass a threshold, this can really compromise and shorten your lifespan. So, so I think that I, I mean, I, and I just want to clarify, I, I talk about drugs because, you know, most of the population is going to want a pill that they can take and be healthier. 
but I think there are many lifestyle interventions that we all can do that is going to have the same impact. All these cleaning systems are very related with nutrition. So, you know, if, if you don't eat so much, probably you are going to activate these systems. If you exercise, you activate these systems. If you sleep for a long, I mean, as usual, like seven hours, you have time to clean in and you activate these responses to, to this damage. So, so I think there are tons of interventions that will not require a pill. The biology is very elegant, but you didn't comment about environmental pollutants or other toxins. How does this interface with your model? Yeah, so, so actually we said with Ed when they were talking about the flood and how that the, the short span historically, and I think there are many aspects like, like the environment will, will affect. Uh, so for example, all these response to stress and response to damage, I mean, I, I was making it sound like, okay, you have the mitochondria, and because you have these nutrients, you are going to have free radicals. If you go to the beach and get exposed to UV, you're going to have the same kind of free radical. So the environment is going to have a big impact. And then they were talking about the, the microbes that can be there. And something that is now, as you know, getting a lot of momentum is the microbiota, the bacteria that is in your body and that has to adapt to the way that you are and contributes to what you are, basically. So I think that one is the environmental component that is also extremely important. In our case, we, as scientists, we always try to simplify. So our animals will be in a very controlled environment. But for example, Fernando Macian, my husband, is challenging these animals now with different infectious uh, agents or with radi radiation. And they seen these guys that have better clinic, they seem to be more resilient. They respond better. So, so I think that this interaction with the environment might also get improved if you attack these molecular processes. He has half his hand. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have no time for questions on the panel. But thank you very much, Jenny, Dr. Sorrell.